I really wanted to use the things that I held back in the book as an opportunity to kind of have that conversation with the reader or open up a conversation that the reader might even have with themselves about like, what are my, what are my expectations as a reader when I open a book about someone else's life? And it's, I know it's a quote unquote true story. What details do I expect? And we've all grown up with tabloid culture. We've all grown up with clickbait headlines. We all are naturally curious about the lives of other people, whether they're celebrities or not. Um, I think we like to read about other people's lives because in, a, in some cases it makes us feel better about our own. Like, well, thank goodness my life's not as messy as X's or Y's. Um, but I also think it's it's like a human impulse to know about the lives of other people. And so it was important for me, um, you know, I've done so much work in therapy about setting boundaries in my life with other people. It was important for me to enact that on the page. Like I'm going to set boundaries in this book and I'm gonna offer you some things and not some others. Hello and welcome to the Minimalist Moms podcast. What now? I am out with lanterns looking for myself. But here's the thing about carrying light with you. No matter where you go, and no matter what you find or don't find, you change the darkness just by entering it. You clear a path through it. A quote from Emily Dickinson that begins the lovely new memoir of poet Maggie Smith. I picked up her book on vacation over the summer and finished within a couple of days. What some are calling a divorce memoir actually discredits the profound truths of self-discovery in life's second chapter. Join me today for a bonus discussion with poet and Columbus, Ohio native Maggie Smith as she explores the power of learning to come home to yourself. For those that are new around here, I release bonus episodes that serve a niche part of my audience. So if this is something that doesn't fit what you're looking for, check out the other episode that dropped this week with Jenny Urich of A Thousand Hours Outside, or join me back here next Tuesday for a conversation that you don't want to miss. And now let's get to the conversation with Maggie. Well, Maggie, thanks so much for joining me today on the Minimalist Moms podcast. Oh, no, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Like I just was telling you, this is a little bit different from what I typically do on the Minimalist Moms podcast, but I had gotten your book on my vacation and I read through it in a couple of days. I absolutely loved it. So well written, beautiful, really spoke to some topics and ideas I've been tossing around in my head. But before we get there, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to listeners and then we'll get started. Yeah, I'm Maggie Smith. As I say, I'm the other Maggie Smith, not um, Professor McGonagall, Dame Maggie Smith. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm a poet and author. I've lived in central Ohio my entire life. Uh, I'm also a single mom. I have two kids, um, school-age kids, and um, I've worked from home, self-employed for the last 12 years. So um, the office that you are seeing me in right now is where I spend a whole lot of my time. Um, my first few books were poetry, and um, my most recent book is prose, um, the memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Um, although I like to say I squirreled a lot of, a lot of my poetry um, skill set into that book of prose, so it really wasn't that different <laughs> of a project for me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we'll definitely get into the format of the book, but I first want you to just introduce the book to the listeners. Again, you wrote a memoir and that's a very vulnerable thing to do. It's a very vulnerable to put your stuff, we'll put in quotes, out there. So why did you decide to share? Yeah, I mean, the it's, it's sort of hard to encapsulate the memoir in like a brief summary or elevator pitch. I was telling a friend, um, really this book is is sort of a reckoning with my adult life. And if you can summarize your adult life in an elevator pitch, you're probably living too small. <laughs> so it's hard for me to, to kind of encapsulate the book, but maybe the best way to do that would be um, to share the epigraph, which is the quote that is on the opening page of the book. And it's a line from the poet Emily Dickinson. And, and it's, um, I am out with lanterns looking for myself. And so I think a lot of people who pick up You Could Make This Place Beautiful might encapsulate it to a friend or family member in recommending it. At, they might call it a divorce memoir. I don't think of it as a divorce memoir. I think of it as a, a sort of excavation of self, uh, a sort of midlife excavation of self, um, a kind of midlife reappearing act as opposed to a disappearing act. And for me, the end of my marriage was the spark, the sort of inciting incident for what made that happen, for what made that possible, really. So, um, it is a kind of crash course in courage and vulnerability, I think, to write a book like this. Mm -hmm. And I have been asked many times, why? Why did you do it? Why didn't you just write this for yourself and not publish it? And my answer to that really is I am a writer. So I don't actually keep a journal. I keep notebooks where I jot down ideas for what I hope will be a poem or an essay or a memoir or a story. But I don't really do writing that is just for me. Um, when I write something down, my hope and intention for it is that it will always be something that eventually I craft and share with other people because I think there's value in it. And I think um, when we're writing about our lives, it's easy to be like, why would anyone care about my small life? Like I'm a single mom and a poet living in central Ohio. Why would anyone wanna read 300 pages about another person's small life. But I think really what we go to books for is to sort of use someone else's experience as a lens through which to see our own experience and perhaps understand our own experience differently or with new clarity or with a different perspective. And so my hope for the book is that even if people haven't shared all or most or even any of the experiences that I'm unpacking for myself in this book. And I hope there are a lot of people who haven't experienced a lot of the things that I've experienced and share in this book. My hope is that it's still in instructive because people might feel seen in a way through that, through that writing. Yeah, that was one point I wanted to get to in this interview is talking about the reflection that we have as we're processing a memoir or is it a mirror being held up to our own lives, our own decisions that we've been making or our own trajectory and kind of reconciling, am I on the path that I want to be on? I'm holding my life up to this one and we all yeah. are comparing constantly, but I really do appreciate that element of 
you just holding up your life and saying, this is my experience. What can you make of your life or take away from this to help you in your own intentional lifestyle? So I guess I would ask you, do you believe within all of this that you live an intentional lifestyle? Do you feel like this moment in your life, this moment of transition, this pinpoint moment, do you think that that helped you to lead a more intentional life? Or do you think that you've always been that type of person? You know, I think I have pretty clear priorities. And it's one of the reasons why I still live more or less in my hometown. Um, You know, I think I know what matters most to me. And it's always been my family and my creativity. And um, I think in my marriage, there were sort of like push and pull moments between those two things. And sometimes, I mean, any working parent knows, sometimes it's hard to balance, you know, work and home life. Sometimes it's hard to balance the sort of like the creative life with the domestic life. And that's certainly some of what I'm unpacking in this book, but it's always been the case. Um, and, And is still the case that my people and my work, my creative work, are the two things that matter most to me. And so I try, it, it makes decision making easier when you're being pulled in a million different directions. I know, I know everyone I know is like this. You open your email in the morning and it's like, whoo, there are so many asks. There are so many invitations, so many opportunities, so many possible projects. Um, And so how do you know what to say yes to? And how do you know what to say no to? Because of course, when you say yes to something, you're saying no tacitly to something else. If you say no to something, you are also saying yes to other things that will fill that space. And so I actually keep some key important objects to me at my desk that are reminders of these things that are the most important things to me, my kids, my work, home, where I come from. And it helps me as my emails come up and I have to think, okay, again, how do I be intentional about how I use my time and talent? Because there's, I'm only one human being and I'm a self-employed single parent. So I am in a lot of ways a one woman band, you know, like picture the, the person who has like the drums attached to them and the keyboard and under their, uh, under their elbow, they're squeezing a little horn and then the symbol is on your head. I mean, that's how it feels a lot of the time. And so I can't say yes to everything, but when I'm sitting at my desk, I can look at these objects and it helps me make a, a sort of measured response like is this thing for me really and is saying yes to it going to mean taking away time from something that actually is a better fit for me or matters more to me so i i am really trying to be intentional as that one woman band because i have to be yeah I'm picturing uh, Dick Van Dyke at the beginning of Mary Poppins, that scene. That's exactly it. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's exactly it. Yeah. So you and I are very similar in the sense where it's 
I, I talk about this often with minimalism, where you've already made the decision in your head what aligns with your values or where you want to place your energy and effort. And so as things are coming up, things that we don't want to happen, things that we do want to happen, things we're going to say yes or no to, or I wish I didn't have to say no or yes to these things, we can try and mold it as best as we can. But we have made these pre determined decisions to align those future decisions with our values. I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, it, and it makes it it makes a, a sort of easier measuring stick, right? So it's like you get presented with an invitation or an ask or an opportunity or a project or something, whether it's personal or professional, and you get to sort of like ask the question, does this align with my values? Is this really for me or is it more an opportunity that would be better suited to other people I know? Am I the person for this? And then what what is the time commitment and what will that mean shoving aside? And will I be shoving aside things that are, are in fact better aligned with my values and talent? In which case, as much as I'd like to say yes to this, it doesn't make sense for me right now. For so long, I felt like I had to fill that space. If I was asked to do something, I would fill the space just to be a people pleaser or just to be a body in that space. And then I realized, hey, maybe I don't want to do that. And maybe, honestly, if I don't say yes, it'll prompt someone else to say yes, and they're the right person to fill that space. But I had to take my ego outside of it to say, like, I'm going to be that person in all these circumstances to fill that space, to step back and say, wait, does this align with what I want? Yeah. And, and like really being discerning. I think that's, that's important. Like time is, is my most precious resource, um, as a writer and as a parent, time means more to me than money. So even if it's a paid opportunity, how much time will it take and what can I, what can I do with that time? And so really being discerning about how we use things. I remember I had to pass on something a couple of years ago and I felt a lot of guilt about it. As a people pleaser and as someone who likes to show up, you know, especially in my community when people need something or want something, I like to show up. And I had to pass on this thing because things were just too hectic. And as it turned out, I later found out that the person who then got this opportunity because I had to pass on it, then forayed it into this beautiful, more long-term opportunity that I wouldn't have been able to handle or have been interested in myself. And so again, it was not for me. It was really for this person. And my ability to bow out, even feeling guilt about it, opened up a path for somebody else that was um, just like better and stronger and shinier, you know, than I would have been able to do with it on my own. So for the last couple of years, I've really wanted an Apple Watch, and I finally got one for my birthday. But you know what? It is just data. My watch will tell me how much I slept, how far I walked yesterday. However, it doesn't tell me exactly how to use the information to improve my health and wellness. And at this point, I don't have time to download and analyze the data. That's where my friend Dr. Eric Quorum comes into play. Eric was my guest back on episode 286. He's a sports scientist and he's built an amazing app called AIM7 that turns your wearable, like your Apple Watch, Aura Ring, Fitbit, etc., into personalized recommendations for exercise, recovery, and mental fitness. 
This app tells you exactly what you need to do each day to look, feel, and perform better, and it's all tailored to things that I like to do. Not only that, it also improves your ability to adapt to stress and become a more resilient person. Over 500 people have used this solution since it launched, and in just 30 days, the average AIM7 member sleeps 16% better, is 19% more motivated, has 13% more energy, has 15% less stress, and lastly, 17% improvement in their mood. If this sounds interesting to you, you can try AIM7 for free for 7 days and then just pay $1 for your first month by using code MINAIM7, all caps, M-I-N-A-I-M-7, on their website. The link is in the show notes. Okay, so we're talking about discernment, and you had discernment to say, I'm not going to share all of the nitty-gritty details of why my marriage dissolved, and people think that they're owed that. And you kept reminding the reader, no, you're not owed this. This is just my work that I'm putting out there. So why do you think as a society we're owed that? And did you make that decision as you sat down to start writing this book? I'm curious if you thought about that at the forefront or if you made that decision afterward and cut things out. Well, I knew um, I knew I wouldn't be sharing everything. I didn't actually write the prologue to the book, which says to the reader, this is not a tell-all. Um, I, I wrote that, um, you know, not first. So I started writing the vignettes that would make up the book first. And then I, I kind of came around fairly early in the process to this idea that I really wanted to open the book and have the very first page. And in fact, the very first sentence, tell the reader what's not on the menu. You know, it's sort of like when you go to a restaurant and I'm a vegetarian, so I really don't like when I go to a restaurant and I get seated and then I realize that there's nothing on the menu for me. <laughs> that, that sounds appealing. Like, no, I don't want that mushroom cap. Thank you. That's the one vegetarian option. And so I really appreciate, and this seems to be something that happens more, you know, in Europe than it does here, when the menu is posted outside. And so I can go up to the restaurant, I can look at the window or at the little stand outside, and I can be like, oh, there are three things on this that look really good to me. Let's go in and sit down. And then I don't have an awkward moment where I have to pack up my stuff and leave after my silverware is already unwrapped and my napkins in my lap. So I really wanted to tell the reader what was and was not on the menu for this book. And I knew going in, um, both as a writer and as a mom, that I would not be giving the whole enchilada to the reader. And I thought a lot about, I mean, I'm a poet, so uh, this has never been something that's come up for me before in a book. I'm, I'm always able to sort of only tell a bit of things. And, and even when I do tell a bit of things, I can couch it in myth or metaphor. So it's not even so directly related to me in my life. That's what poetry makes possible. But in writing a metaphor, I knew it would be a much more naked telling of my life, a much more direct telling. And so I knew early on, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna say everything. I mean, I don't owe that to the reader. And, you know, I really wanted to use the things that I held back in the book as an opportunity to kind of have that conversation with the reader or open up a conversation that the reader might even have with themselves about like, what are my, what are my expectations as a reader? when I open a book about someone else's life, and it, I know it's a quote-unquote true story, what details do I expect? And we've all grown up with tabloid culture. 
We've all grown up with clickbait headlines. We all are naturally curious about the lives of other people, whether they're celebrities or not. Um, I think we like to read about other people's lives because in, a, in some cases it makes us feel better about our own. Like, well, thank goodness my life's not as messy as X's or Y's. Um, but I also think it's, it's like a human impulse to know about the lives of other people. And so it was important for me, um, you know, I've done so much work in therapy about setting boundaries in my life with other people. It was important for me to enact that on the page. Like I'm going to set boundaries in this book and I'm gonna offer you some things and not some others. So it's interesting as you're saying all this, I'm, I'm processing my own reaction to having read that. And I'll be honest, I, I was kind of like, I'm curious, I'm, I wonder what the detail was here. But you know what's interesting? When we find out the detail, when we find out the detail about the celebrity or the friend, we find out the detail. You cheated, you were an alcoholic, you were addicted to whatever, fill in the blank. It's like, oh yeah, wow, I can't believe that. And then it's it's gone. It, it's this moment, it's a brief moment that we have of a reaction and then we keep living our lives. And that is something that you were saying, this was heavy, this was impactful to me, this was painful to me. It's not gonna just be a quick momentary reaction for you to get your kicks, to get your fill. And I think that's, we have to remember that. Yeah, I mean, when you're when you're reading something that someone else has either shared consensually or had written about them, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's maybe interesting to you, right? Maybe it piques your curiosity or satisfies your curiosity, but it's someone else's life. Yeah. And so putting this book into the world, I mean, writing it was one thing, mm -hmm. but then sharing it, you know, kicking it out of the nest and letting other people read it was something else. Like, I have to live with this information being out in the world and so I get to curate it in a way that makes me comfortable so that I can live and move in the world knowing that when I meet someone and they say oh I read your book there's this asymmetry right like we're sitting here talking and you know a lot more about me than I know about you because you've read my memoir but I but you don't know everything because some of the things I kept for myself. Mm -hmm. That's just because we haven't had drinks yet. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I, I would, I, you know, plenty of people know the whole story. It's just not in the book. Yeah. 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 Well, I just think it's a fleeting emotion, a fleeting reaction that we have to other people's. It's not, I can't think of the word that I want to use stuff just their their stuff and again i think that you were like hey i want to hold this mirror up as a reflection and this is my story do with it what you will but you don't get it all yep because this is something that's not fleeting for me and i i respect that thank you yeah and my kids like it's also one thing to disclose a bunch of stuff about me personally but i was extra protective about what i shared because i'm not alone in this family absolutely yeah so i have to i have to leave I have to leave some some open spaces so that when these kids grow up, if they want to tell their own stories, they can. And I haven't stepped in and spoken for them. You know, that's not my place. Absolutely. So you talk about the spaces between empty places, quiet parts. Why were those important to you when you were going through them? And why are those moments specifically important to women? And what did you find there in those moments between the empty places and the quiet parts? Oh my, I need so much downtime. I need an incredible amount of quiet. 
in my life. Um, if I'm out with people for four hours, whether it's a work function or a social function, I come home and I, I like will lay on the couch and close my eyes. Um, I am I'm like a true introvert. I'm gregarious, but I need a lot of downtime. And so for me, I mean, I, I structured the book with a lot of white space to kind of stand in for those open places. Also because it's kind of processing room, right? Like if I've handed you something heavy, maybe it's only two sentences, but I don't want you to feel like you have to just barrel on to the next thing. I want you to be able to sit with that heavy thing. And that white space on the rest of the page gives you a little bit of like literal breathing room to do that. Same thing in life. I, I need, I think, you know, maybe not more than the average person, but in order to write and do what I do, which is often kind of a deep dive, I think about like admin work and like packing lunches and driving to soccer and checking email and doing laundry. All of these things happen sort of at the surface. And if I fill up my entire day with that surface level work, whether it's on behalf of the kids or on behalf of myself, I'm giving myself no room and space to do that deep dive, which is where I need to go for the creative stuff to happen. I can't write poems on the surface. I just can't do it. And so I think, you know, as a creative person, I need that space. I think as women, our lives, particularly as parents, can get completely sort of co-opted by those administrative tasks. I can spend a whole day doing nothing but stuff in service of others. Easy, easy. And then at the end of the day, I'm exhausted. And it's not that I haven't achieved anything I have. I've done a bunch of stuff in the service of others. But where, where am I in that? Um, I have needs that are not being met in all of those hours. And so I think being more intentional about time and carving out time for ourselves, whether you're um, you know, doing creative work and you need that headspace or whether you just want to give yourself time to take a long walk or do yoga or have a phone call with a friend or whatever the thing is, I think it makes us better people. Fill up so that you can also not be completely wrung out at the end of the day. I've been talking a lot about those administrative tasks recently, just with some girlfriends and saying, I'm really grateful for my husband and he is hands-on when he has the kids, but there are things that he doesn't have to think about. He doesn't have to think about the lunches or the doctor appointments. Uh, I just realized my son hasn't seen the doctor in a year because I got this medical form from school. I was like, oh my, I forgot that we haven't done that. And when I told my husband, he's like, how have you not gotten him in? And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. We're both parents here, and that's something that, again, I, I don't mind doing it. I, I'm pretty much a well-oiled machine with most of these things, but sometimes you drop the ball, and it's like, well, I'm not the only one that is a parent here, and also, why does this always fall on the woman? And again, maybe we're better at, at doing these little tasks and, and carrying a lot of that load, but it's just like... Oh, no, we're not. No, we're not. It, we ju it just defaults to us. Yeah. It just defaults to us. Yeah. It's, it has nothing to do. I mean, it's like if you don't want to do something, do it poorly once and you'll never be asked to do it again. Yeah. 
Um, so it's like, I know I'm not better at filling a dishwasher. Mm. I know I'm not better at making doctor's appointments. Mm-hmm. I know I'm, no one is like reasonably better at these things because I know most men are really good about keeping up with their own appointments <laughs> at work. So it's like, you have the executive functioning to be doing these things. You just don't have to. Yeah. I've outsourced haircuts to him because I yeah. want to cut my boy's hair and I don't do a very good job at it. So <laughs> I was like, well, if you don't want me to cut it, then you can take it over. It's your thing. Now. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, just thinking about those tasks that women carry and the, the, I've always thought that maybe scroll time, Instagram, social media time, maybe there is a place for that in our self-care downtime. But I had an experience on Saturday. I went to this tea ceremony at Bohendi in UA and I was super skeptical going into it. I was just like, this can't possibly, I don't know. We'll just see how it goes. Well, I sat there, I allowed myself to start meditating and being silent. And it was something that you had to be silent at no phone for almost an hour. And by the end, I had almost fallen asleep numerous times. And mm-hmm. it was honestly, we were just drinking tea. We had six rounds of small cups of tea that we had together. And at the end, during the reflection time, someone had said, it's just so nice to sit down and drink tea with one another in this fast paced world. And it felt like a quiet time for me where again, I think sometimes I just, I have my phone at hand and to me, that's not quiet. You are taking in all this other stuff. And it's like, I can't bear the burden or the weight of this admin task, plus my job, plus I homeschool my dad. Like there's too much. So I do need this time in between that blank part of the page of my day where I may not have recognized that I wasn't getting it. But once I had it, I was like, oh, this makes all the difference. Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, if even if you're sitting quietly in a room alone and you're scrolling your phone, mm-hmm. it's still a ton of stimuli, yeah. right? So you're 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 taking in a lot of sort of mental noise, yeah. even if they're even if it's physically literally quiet. And mm-hmm. so to get out instead and take a walk. Yeah. You know, even if you have your phone in your pocket counting your steps. Yeah. But you're you're not like paying attention to it. You're not looking at it. You're actually looking up and looking around and listening and mm-hmm. having a, an actual sensory experience in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's critical. And I don't know that we get enough, mm-hmm. get enough of that or carve out enough intentional time. Yeah. Well, and I recognized, I told my husband, I'm like, we can just do this. We can put our phones in another room on a weekend and take 30 minutes of silence. It doesn't have to be a full hour, but we, we need this because we're not getting this. So it's really important. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, just to kind of wrap things up, I'm curious to know who you would say your ideal reader is for this book. Um, human beings. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, you know, it's, it's like, I was talking to a a man recently, actually, who was like, I feel like there is a misconception about a book like this, that the ideal reader is a woman. Mm -hmm. And he said, we don't want to be preaching to the choir. Mm. And I said, yes, that's exactly it. You know, I, I really do think um, young women and young men can get something from this book. If you're in your 20s, and maybe you haven't you're not, you know, solidly partnered yet mm-hmm. as a way to kind of think more intentionally about what what your partnership might look like and what that division of labor might look like and what kind of dynamic you might want and be really intentional about that beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people who are reading this book are 
are people who are married or divorced and are seeing some of their like lived experience in these pages. Mm -hmm. But I love the idea of men reading this book. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard from a couple of men, one who was like, this book um, inspired me to sit down and have a talk with my wife Mm -hmm. about her goals and dreams and maybe how I'm not doing enough to support them Mm -hmm. and how she's shouldering all of this mental load and all of this stuff with our kids while I work and how we need to sort of re rebalance Mm -hmm. things before we get to a point where we are feeling a lot of resentment and snark Mm -hmm. about what the other person isn't doing. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, I'm a little facetious when I say human beings, but really just like adult humans, Mm -hmm. I think is the ideal reader for this book. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, it's just also beautifully written and I'm always recommending beautifully written pieces of art to people. So I, highly recommend this book for anyone. And then my last question, going back to that intentionality piece, how would you encourage people to pursue a life of intention? Mm. Check in with yourself. I mean, I think it's really easy in the busyness of our days to just, again, barrel on. Oh, I got to do this. 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 Wait, do you actually have to do any of that like what is essential you know when I'm writing a poem and I go to edit it one of the questions I ask myself as I'm editing that poem is what information here is essential what does the reader need and what what is maybe extra that I can just let go as I whittle this thing down to its sort of like core essence if I want it to be really concise and succinct and so why not approach life the way that we approach you know editing down something um, be to be more intentional about checking in and thinking, okay, what is actually the best use of my time and energy? What feels essential and what is extra? And then of those extra things, what gives me a lot of joy or peace of mind or a fun challenge? And then are there things in that extra bin that actually don't provide any one of those three things for me, in which case they're on the chopping block, frankly. Well, and that can go back to the thing we were talking about, about filling a space and being a body that, I mean, I think we have to say, is this essential? Is this essential to my life and my goals and what I want to achieve and to this person? So I think that's great advice. Well, Maggie, where can listeners grab a copy of this awesome book or connect with you online? Um, I am Maggie Smith Poet everywhere. So my website is maggiesmithpoet.com on social media. Um, I'm Maggie Smith Poet, so folks can find me there. They can find me on Substack, um, too, which is my newsletter, and that's something I'm having a ton of fun with, like sort of discussing the creative process and trying to kind of demystify that for people who might want to write, um, maybe even about their own lives that are not quite sure how to go about doing it. So that's that's been something I've been having a good time with. Yeah, I'll have to follow along with your Substack. I contemplated starting one because a friend, Laura Fenton, had mentioned how much fun she was having over there. I think just getting in the process of writing again after having written a book, it's it's hard to get back into it, especially with a lot going on. But yeah, it gets you consistently writing. Well, I'm going to ask you the questions that I ask every guest at the end. And my first question that I always ask is, what has been a beneficial resource in your life that you want to share with the listeners? And this could be a documentary, a book, any type of resource you want to share. Okay, this is maybe an odd one. 
my kids and I kind of got into a, a habit over the summer of having a lot of picnic meals, <laughs> either outside or in front of the television instead of eating at the table. And so one of the ways that I'm getting us back to the table having conversations is I bought this deck of conversation cards that are like specifically for families. And so it just lives in this little cube on our dining room table. And then whenever we sit down to meals, somebody picks a card out of this deck and then poses the question, you know, if you could go any place on earth for a day or what's your, you know, ideal birthday meal or what's the worst punishment you can think of for, for something or whatever the thing is. And then it give it's sort of like a little conversation starter and we'll draw a few cards while we sit down for a meal and it just gets the conversation going in different directions than how was your day, how was school, what's up next on the calendar, you know, that surface level stuff. And they, they always come up with things that surprise me and, and like help me get to know them better as they get older. Mm -hmm. Is it the table topics, those that little blue like container that sits on your table? It, it's clear. Yeah. Um, the, it's a, like a clear cube and the cards are lime green. But yeah, okay. it's, it's like family table topics. Cool. Okay, yeah. that's awesome. I definitely want to check that out as my kids get older. I think the answers will take longer to digest and interact with one another. Yeah. All right, well, my last question, and then I'll let you go, is what is something that you can't stop talking about? Probably the creative process. I mean, I, I'm always talking about the creative process. Like, how do you get from, like, the rough idea? And that's something I do on my Substack, But I'm also just, like, constantly prattling on about it <laughs> with, with writer friends or artist friends or even my kids. Like, how do, you, how do you go from the rough idea to, like, a finished piece of work? I find it so fascinating. And even across medium, like... How do you know, how do you take a raw photograph and then edit it to be something that you're happy with? How do you take an idea for a painting? And then what is the final what is the final product? So that's something that I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by how a little tiny idea starts as a seed and then becomes something shareable. Absolutely. Well, I'll be sure to link your Substack so that people can hear more about you and the creative process. And um, again, your book is called You Could Make This Place Beautiful. And I just appreciate you sharing the book with us and your life with us. Not all of the things, but I appreciate <laughs> you sharing it with us today. Oh, thanks. It's, it was fun. What did you think of the episode? I hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links, resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at minimalistmomspodcast.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as my book, Minimalist Moms Living and Parenting with Simplicity, or other ways to connect or work with me online. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a rating or review of your favorite episode. Lastly, sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends on social media is very helpful and will encourage others on their journey to think more and do with less.